I'm Laura Vinrit Pool of Capital, and this is What We Wore. I love a brilliant merchant, and there's no one more legendary than Mickey Drexler. Mickey is the former CEO of Ann Taylor, The Gap, J. Crew, and the founder of spinoff brands Old Navy and Madewell. He's currently the chairman of Alex Mill, the New York-based women's and men's fashion brand, where he works with his son, Alex. This episode is a true retail masterclass and a lot of fun, too. The first time that I heard of you was in the late 80s. I was probably 16 years old, maybe 17. And I was at Andover. And I don't know if I was in a and it was a dorm room, a common room, or it was a classroom. Somebody came in and said, you know, we're talking about Gap going out of business. And somebody in the conversation said, don't worry about it because they have the smartest person who's ever been involved in retail at the helm. He's going to save their asses. Wow. <laughs> so this is late. I mean, this is a really, I'm 51 years old. This is a really long time ago, but I remember it specifically. And they said, it's Mickey Drexler. And I was like, I don't know who that is, but noted. How did he know about me? It was somebody who turns out to be our mutual family friend. Okay. But- <laughs> anyway, thank, thank him for that, uh, you know, compliment early on. Isn't that funny though? 1988 probably? You know, it's funny. I remember things like whatever struck me the same way uh, on issues that happened 30, 40 years ago, both good and not so good. <laughs> I can repeat so many things, but I'm happy to hear that. Well, it's true. Where are you from? Uh, well, I grew up in the Bronx, New York. And what was that like? You know, I didn't know any better about what existed outside the Bronx. And my mother was ill uh, when I was born, and she uh, survived for 16 years with breast cancer, and she died of esophageal cancer because she was a chain smoker. And uh, my father, he wanted desperately to be successful, and he was not. He worked in the shipping room of a garment uh, coat company. You know, my mother had three sisters. It was like a kibbutz. They lived (laughs) down the street. Two of the three of them in a home, a two-story house that my grandparents lived in. They came from Poland, first generation. They, I used to escape to their house because my cousins were all there. And one of the things I think I got out of all this was living in my imagination. It wasn't easy at all. So I went to science high school, which changed my life a lot. I don't know if you know of it here in New York. Tell me about it. Well, it's uh, it's considered um, you're automatically smart. But I got in. I didn't know. You know, I just took you take one single test. So you don't have to bribe anyone. You don't have to write essays. You take a test. So the whole grade at PS 76 took the test. And I was one of five who got in. Wow. I, I was really surprised. I never, I, I, it just surprised me. I was always good in mathematics. I didn't know how to spell science, but that was, so I got to change my life yeah. because I all of a sudden was with people who got always better grades than me. <laughs> 
And I used to get intimidated by their high grades. I went there for four years, but I'll tell you how it changed my life. Uh, no one of my seven cousins went to college. And when I went to Bronx Science, it was automatic yeah. that you went to college. Everyone went to college. Your mother died when you were 16? I was 16. Yeah, well, I was a sophomore in high school. And she died then. And I was waiting for her every day. I knew she was dying. I knew she had mastectomy, yeah. but they never told you yeah. in those days. Yeah. But I knew I saw it. I and, and it was something I carried around with me mentally uh, always. That you were going to miss that moment or school and not being successful? Well, not I didn't worry about not being successful because that wasn't uh, a category. At the, yeah. I was too yeah. young. I worried about everything because the environment, the way I got out of town was the only way. I applied to Buffalo and the University of Pennsylvania. Why? I would never have gotten in anyway. Buffalo's a state school. Thank God I got in. <laughs> the reason I picked it is some guy, guy I knew went there. I didn't know from colleges. Thank God I got in. And then I went off to school that September. You know, I was on my own, which is okay. I knew the one kid. So I graduated. You know, two years later, I was deathly afraid of going into the army, the Vietnam War. Yeah. So um, I had a little ploy. And I probably, I started seeing a psychiatrist. Oh, really? Because I knew the section. On the other hand... <laughs> I needed to see one that I didn't know. I, <laughs> it was a ploy, total ploy. And uh, so I was seeing, and then when I moved back to New York, I continued seeing someone. And then when they sent me the letter, I, you know, plus every night, <laughs> Peggy and I got married young and I'm sleeping. I'm nervous every Aww. night that I get the letter. Yeah. So the letter finally comes. And I have my psychiatrist letter, Section 8, it's called. Yeah. And, you know, this is, it was just a nightmare. Gentlemen, <laughs> you know, you know, you'll, you think you're cold now, just wait, oh, you know, whatever. Lord. Get the shit out yeah. of me. So I get to the desk, I hand the letter, and I wasn't eligible, which, by the way, he didn't say, you know, you wouldn't be eligible anyway without the letter. <laughs> With, you know, it just, uh, so I didn't go. And I loved my job at Bloomingdale's. Then. You started at Bloomingdale's uh, then? Yeah, right after I went to, well, I also worked in retail. I worked at ANS, which is, a, I don't know if you remember, it was a crap house. What are some of the most important lessons you learned in those early years of Bloomingdale's or Macy's, ANS? Now, Macy's wasn't so early. I, I Six years Bloomingdale's and a year and a half at Macy's, which forget about it. <laughs> and then a bigger mistake at ANS. I mean, I, and I never met someone who I could really admire. I, you know, you, you don't say that, but the one person who was the most important in those early years was a woman named Katie Murphy. She was the fashion director at Bloomingdale's. You know, she could out-merchandise anyone <laughs> there. But she was this, I don't know, they had her be 
might, I don't like the word mentor because then they never used that word. But Katie and I, we took a few trips to Europe a year. I bought sweaters and swimwear. So we'd go to the sweater factories and we had tremendous compatibility with each other. We like, she was Irish. I was 25. She was maybe 45 or whatever. (laughs) Wonderful. And I miss her. That was the first person who got me. I went on and uh, at Bloomingdale's and then I quit after six years So I left after six years at Bloomingdale's because I saw people getting promoted around me, age, service. Right. I didn't know that I had no respect for them. But inside, no. Ed Finkelstein did one thing. He recruited me with, I'll never forget this. I learned my lesson. That was a big lesson because I went to work for him. I was in the branches at Bloomingdale's, those are the days you, you know, training, whatever, and then to the branches. And and he called me and said, hi, this is Ed Finkelstein. I just want to welcome you aboard. Now, Ed was a huge name. I was so happy about yeah. that. I do that all the time, but that's how I do anyway. But never forgot that. Yeah. But I didn't realize the rest of it. So, uh, so I quit. Uh, about a month, I got a job at A&S. This, the owners of then Bloomingdale's and A&S Federated, they, were, they recruited me back. I said, yes. Four and a half horrible years <coughs> working for Alan Gilman, who was, he didn't know a thing about anything. But, you know, in him, I kind of had a sense. I was miserable. I didn't know what I would do. I, I really didn't. I was in New York. You know, you can't afford to live in New York. <laughs> I was making. And uh, someone called me, uh, said Ann Taylor's looking for a, a CEO, whatever. Ann Taylor, 25 million then, 25 stores. I said no. And then I said no again. I was, And these are moments in your life. So I had dinner with a guy who was older, richer, and then we don't talk to each other. And he always hung out with much younger people, which I was. <laughs> We're having dinner with him one night. And he said, what What are you doing? What are you up to? I told him the story that I turned it down because I was worried about, you know, I made a salary. And, yeah. and, and he said, take the job. You, you're better off running a $25 million company than being a vice president of a right. 500 million. So next morning I was praying they didn't fill the job. They didn't fill the job. I called the president of the corporation, said, Manny, is that position filled? He said, no, I didn't. <laughs> and I said, I'm taking it. Uh, or whatever I said. And I took the job. That's when they started to call you the turnaround king, right? Okay. Turnaround <laughs> is to me not what I do or what anyone does who has a long-term view of building a business. Yep. You don't turn it around in those days. Yeah, turnaround, that was the only term they used. And for a public company, which Ann Taylor wasn't, you know, turnaround people, oh, they get the stock up in a year or two, 
the turnaround this, right. the turnaround that. You can't build a company in a year or two. I was 18 years at Gap and building. And uh, at J. Crew, I built the Old Navy. I found yep. that. I think you know that. I named it after a store. I don't know if you I know, do know that. This. After a bar. In Paris. <laughs> And that was with lots of resistance from the board. <laughs> I don't know. You don't have a board, but if you have them, you know, the, you, there's very few people who get yeah. it. But at Ann Taylor, could like right when you got in there, was it clear what needed to be done? You know, it's funny. People ask me and I say, I guess, yeah, I did. I learned very quickly mm -hmm. from my experience at the department stores and from Brooks Brothers, who was owned by the same company, parenthetically, I could see the CEO was bringing it down, taking quality out, doing this other thing. And it became what it is. My prom dress was Ann Taylor. It, it really was. I mean, it, it used to be really, really beautiful. Well, the company was a nightmare. <laughs> As by the way, it was Gap and J. Crew. But I liked famous companies. Well, Ann Taylor, 57th and 5th, and it had uh, Soho Charcuterie there and Joan and David oh, Shoes. Wow. You know, but I was, I, I, whatever, but I liked that it was well known. Mm -hmm. And I liked that it was 50, the, the headquarters store and our offices. I didn't have. I guess I did have a vision. From there, you went to the Gap? Well, I spent four years there. Six months when I was there, we were bought by Allied stores. Right. I was very unhappy about that. I, I just had a sense. You know, this was a cozy little company. The bureaucrats, they're all bureaucrats. They were in Washington, D.C. They didn't do the thing. I was on my own at Bloomingdale's as a buyer. I was on my own at A&S then there was no merchants around who taught right. or you would follow their examples. I did that for four years and they were trying to bring down the company, put a unit of allied stores on every <laughs> shopping bag. I never did it. Of course, they they never followed up on anything. <laughs> then I get a call after four years and I wasn't, I never negotiated good deals. I still couldn't afford to uh, upscale my tiny apartment. In the <laughs> and I'm now 35 years old. I was on the board of my building, a fancy building, but I had a cut up upon Park Avenue on the back. But So I get a call from a woman named Rose Wells, who was a, a grand, I don't want to say old person, but Rose was kind of a legend. Everyone knew Rose. Mm -hmm. She calls me, she said, you know, and she's a consultant for Gap. She says, um, I want you to meet Don Fisher at Gap. I said, I'm not moving, but of course I'll meet him. Um, so uh, I come in. I was so depressed for the first, my wife and I were living in San Francisco. I'm working in San Bruno, California. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I can't stand it here. It's depressing. Uh, and the culture, holy shit. I mean, you, you'd never I lived mean, out of New York. Well, I know, yeah, I, I never lived out, but but I never worked in an office park 
ever. Yep. I like New York City and the creative yeah. and energy, but it's the least of it. The people there, nightmare. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you have to do that. That's the first thing of the people. Yeah. And, and the most important thing. So I, um, and then I'd sit there and they would know there's a 12 o'clock flight <laughs> to Hong Kong. I mean, who gives a shit? Because they <laughs> live you know, in the airport and they would think, oh, and there's a one o'clock flight or whatever. <laughs> and, and then they, everything was a discount on sale. Shalak him. Yeah. Business was going like this. I'll never forget, I visited uh, Houston Galleria, parked the car, I get out, and I, I see all these uh, flyers on the windshield. I look at one, today only, gap 30 off everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, like they knew you were coming. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to see Hector, who was the uh, district manager. He was in the store. And I, I said, Hector, what's going on here? He said, oh, we have, we do that every once in a while. And I, I didn't, I didn't intellectualize. I felt, what kind of schlock? Because <laughs> I always wanted to, I always knew what, I guess I knew what other, what taste or style, I don't know. So that was the beginning. First year and a half, a nightmare. As Peggy said, obviously I'm not going to say this. She goes, I don't understand how you could run a public company and come home every night so depressed. It's like all you've ever wanted, right? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, the depression. No, I, well, I didn't want to live in San Francisco. <laughs> but you were there for 18 years, Mickey. How did you make it work? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, had a, a long story short, I meet, well, the second day or the third day, what I do in all these jobs. I went through the complete assortment. I said, bring all the, anything we own, bring and also bring anything on order. I always do that. And I went with a fine tooth comb yeah. with every stock. The biggest ownership and on order, well, let's see, you were quite, you were a child then, was those backstitched pocket jeans. Yep. And I said to them, I said, got to mark them down. <laughs> Levi's was one third of the company. Uh, Don invented it by not being able to get his size in Levi's. And, they, you know, he was, uh, so he did Levi's only for six years. It was booming. And then by 1975, it started going this way. <laughs> So anyway, I looked through the whole on order. Uh, I, I went to visit, Le the one third, the company, I went to visit Levi's, uh, who I never liked, a bunch of, another bunch of boring <laughs> San Francisco. And I went to visit them, among other things. I was taking markdowns left and right. Huge. Yeah. you got to liquidate it. Before I say Levi's, so Don, it was January, early January, you know, my offices were across. He said, you're killing the quarter. What are you taking all these markdowns for? So that hits my emotional button. <laughs> There's certain things. So I said, Don, if we don't take these markdowns, we're going to have, because we you have to have a bad quarter the first year when you're liquidating all your right, inventory. Right. I said, 
if we don't convert this to cash, this will be an albatross for the next few years. So the stock, and this that's public company, dropped 50%. It was dropping anyway. So the stock when I joined was 24. I think it ended up at 12 <laughs> after the quarter. And I, you know, something I I, I never let anything, I worry, but if I get knocked down, I get right back up. Yep. Always. Yep. That's what I do because my life was about being knocked down. I didn't plan getting back up always. So I hired two Ann Taylor people, one to do all the product and Maggie to do all the marketing. Now, Maggie to Ann Taylor, she was an accessory buyer. I said, let's start a catalog. And I picked her to do it. Who cares? She had great style and taste and she was creative. Yeah. And that's what I do. I take shots. Not the, to me, they're uh, well thought out risks. And she was a big hitter. And by the way, both of our relationships ended like this. Yeah. They both walked out and they never spoke to me again. San Francisco was socially tough. <laughs> the people you didn't love. No, that's a good way to put it. But one person I know that was really important to you that you really you really respected and loved was Steve Jobs. Loved and respected. Uh, I met him in Napa Valley at a birthday party. Of course, I knew who he was. And I guess he knew who I was. So he starts to schmooze with me. <laughs> and, you know, in those days, you know, it was late 90s. I never really <laughs> felt, I guess I was, you know, not young. Uh, and maybe I was in my early 40s or whatever. And I still, I was always, well, he, he was a god and famous and not even that. And I, so he said to me, he started, he said a little bit later, can you join the board of Apple computer? And I said, no, I don't like boards. <laughs> he is the most seductive person. Uh, doesn't stop. And look what he did with the record industry. Yeah. Uh, and he went at, we chatted two or three times. And then he said to me the following, the last chat, he says, if you join the Apple board, I will join the gap. Board. And you were like, yeah, I said, yeah. And why? Because Steve is a, he's a He's what's the word I use for Steve? I he's a, a he's a rabble rouser, but that's a, he he just says whatever he thinks he could be like. He's kind of other people would consider him maybe rude. I never did. I loved what he did. I loved his brain, but he was irreverent. And was he helpful with the gap? I mean, did he have interesting things to contribute? What he contributed was people who did not like him. Huh because he would take no prisoners. He said whatever he thought. And Steve is, was being Steve. It sounds, sounds and, a little uh, like you. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but, you know, but he was, that's what he was. You know, I'm very difficult, I guess. <laughs> but Steve had a vision always. He was there so that I could help him design the first good store. Yeah. You know, be a, you know, be and also, I guess I, I had really pretty good judgment, I think, in those days. 
And, you know, I never realized because he was a bit intimidating. But to me, he was could do no wrong. And by the way, I don't understand a damn thing about technology. <laughs> In fact, one thing that annoyed him, I was still on my BlackBerry because <laughs> I was intimidated about a new device. <laughs> Finally, I got an iPad and I did the BlackBerry under the desk. <laughs> Uh, Mickey. Then, I, then when I finally switched, I said, what the hell? This is such a great product. So uh, I was on the board for 16 years. I just watched him. And I didn't really, you know, when you do something, when you look back, I looked at what an experience yeah. to watch him. Yeah. And he actually had a nice relationship. Uh, although his uh, Laureen, his uh, widow, uh, said he loved me once. Aww. And I said, I knew that when he was alive. Because <laughs> he is intimidating and he's so smart. Yeah. And he is the smartest guy in the room. And then the other thing, he he had cancer for his last, I'm guessing, five or six years. Huh. And he didn't want surgery or whatever. And then when he, I don't think I'm saying anything that's private. When he had his uh, liver transplant, I think it was in Kansas City, wherever, because there was some publicity. Uh, We got a call saying he was, maybe had a few days to live. Wow. And it was like, oh my God. He lived for another year or two. How did being fired from the gap make you a better leader? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's a good question. Uh, I got knocked down. I was stunned. 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 Beyond. Though <laughs> uh, Don did say right after our press conference where, you know, announcing me and I didn't know I didn't have a contract, whatever. <laughs> I didn't thank God. And then he called me in to speak to me. And I was always pleasant to whatever anyone does to me or whatever. I wasn't mad, but I was stunned. And he said, I made a mistake. And he would like to back me um, with his family in a new company that I would start. And then that was the end. I left. Oh, I went to see the board. By the way, not one person on the board called me. After 18 years, wow. 18 years. Wow. And, you know, that's that's actually worse than being fired. Yeah. You know, that's really, I'll never forget that. Yeah. It's just not the way I'm built or a lot of people yeah. are. And then moved straight to J. Crew. No, uh, I left. Uh, I was living in San Francisco. And Jim Coulter, who I knew was a neighbor of mine in San Francisco, runs, still does TPG, huge private equity firm. And he called, we would chat about what one could do with J. Crew. They owned it for seven years and uh, seven years. And ironically, a good friend of mine, Ken Pilot, uh, was the CEO. I replaced Ken. You know, uh, he was there maybe six months. We're, We're friends, but... You know, it is what it is. So anyway, I came in. Uh, I thought it had terrific. I used to love J. Crew in its early oh, yeah. days. 
very inspirational. I used to look at their catalog and uh, it was inspirational. There's always someone out there who inspires me or someone. So anyway, I moved to J. Crew, and then Old Navy became this thing. But now I could never really figure out what to do with it. You know, probably didn't have the right team. And by the way, none of this gets done without the right team yeah. members. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that and, and your leadership style at J. Crew, which is notorious. You're famous for talking about how much you love to micromanage. Will you talk about that and kind of your use of the PA system? And it must have been different from the Gap because we only heard about it from J. Crew. Yeah, well, at the Gap, you know, I would have had it if I thought about it then. But I was all over the place. Everyone kind of knew me. I'd have store uh, manager meetings at the beginning weekly, selected 50 stores. Feedback, feedback, feedback. Student, 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 and curiosity, or else you can't be successful, in my opinion. So I, uh, at J. Crew, there was the prior CEO had a walled office. <laughs> and so I move in there. I'm thinking, what am I going to do here? And then I call people voicemail, this, that, or the other thing. And it wasn't, you know, the, in those days, yeah. it wasn't as much. So uh, about three in three days, and I, I met the old assistant there, not old in age, right. but one who was there. And she wasn't even within hollering distance. So I don't know how it happened, but I said, everything needs to be urgent in a company like this where it's going down. Yeah. I, and I couldn't, I hate when people don't respond quickly. Today and then emails, calls, texts, I find it respect. Yes, agreed. Smart. And you always return calls. A lot of people don't know they wait too long. So anyway, I got the loudspeaker. We had, I think, two or three floors in the building, but it covered everything. <laughs> and I used it as first as please see me come up. I want to learn whatever. Then I used it to take surveys or if someone wanted to open up a store in Nashville I asked who lived in Nashville, tell me about this neighborhood. Right. And you learn a lot that way. I had once a week open office hours. Most people are not comfortable saying what they think, <laughs> but I had enough who said it. And you get a lot of ideas like that. It also made, I think, me kind of like a regular person yeah. who them and I work every day. But I, it made me learn. I learned a lot from people who told me things that, you know, it was a big company, yeah. you know, it got to be, I don't know how many billions, but it was about 400 million, same as Gap, ironically. Huh. I'll tell you what I think about micromanaging. It's not micromanaging. It's managing. It's taking <laughs> care of the details that a customer notices. I see everything through a customer lens. I walked in across the street for coffee where I always go, and the music, I, I know the with St. Ambrose. And the music, I said to Mo, I said, Mo, this music is off brand. <laughs> I, I say that and, to the girls every day, though. I mean, every day I walk in the store, it's about, 
How does it smell? What, you know, what's the temperature? Is the music, every single thing? How does a client feel every single day when they walk in? I mean, that's, that's the job. Of course. Micromanaging is, has a negative connotation, but I respect, you know, Steve Jobs used to make every screw horizontal. You know, but I micromanage, yeah. yes, because I am a customer and every experience that I have, a customer has, happens every day, all the time. The other thing that, that was notorious about you is that you interviewed every person that came through the company, I think. What's your favorite question to ask? I learned to do that when I was at Ann Taylor. I ran in you know, a small company, maybe 25. I ran into a woman who I didn't know. I said, hi, I'm Mickey. And it wasn't an interview, it was a chat. And I said to myself, how did she ever get this job? <laughs> Seriously, she didn't qualify. I mean, not, not experience-wise, I don't really care about experience. And I've had that happen a few times of guy I stop and what is he doing? Yeah. I went to my partner and I said, from now on, I want to interview every person that we hire. That was very small. And I said, because we're responsible for their career. And if they get hired by us, it's everything's a risk. But uh, I don't want to say the first day he or she doesn't get it. So that's when I started interviewing people. Yeah. And it was easier to Taylor at Gap, much bigger so I interviewed all customer-facing jobs, merchandising, design, marketing. And then I used to have a conference, a little get-together after every single person. That's the most important ingredient in any successful company. We'd sit around the table, those of us that interviewed her or him. I had veto power because that's what I yeah. need to do. And so that's how I started. And here, this very few people interview uh, with Small and J. Crew, uh, same thing. But what I now look for is I always look at resumes with cynicism. Why? Who's going to hand in a resume that doesn't build themselves <laughs> up? Yeah. You know, I learned that if you're thinking it, it is. And a lot of the world is, so tell me, straight. And uh, so resumes, I look at only for negatives, because if you see a, a pathway or footprints, you know, then I know. I don't care about where they went to college. I don't care about their grades. I don't care about their board scores. So my first question usually is, why well, I start to schmooze. Because I schmooze with a lot of people. And once you schmooze with someone, you, you get a sense they volley yep. back and forth. I say, well, tell me about your childhood. Or what was your faith? This, that. Well, who, who do you like working for the most? And then most of them say they were very nice. I said, well, <laughs> be very nice. Are they? Did they? So I, I just back and forth. They're not prepared. Uh and that's good, better off the cuff conversation. Completely agree. Post J. Crew, you, you've always wanted to work for yourself, and I love that. Then you were with Drexel Ventures, um, investing in young entrepreneurs. Tell me what, what that was like, and, and and how did you know who you wanted to invest in? Well, it was boring as hell. <laughs> I'm not a good investor. <laughs> I admit, 
I'm really not. And I was thinking, what do I do? Uh, I was bored. And, you know, investments. So, you know, you look at numbers and you pray that, you know, the founders know what they're doing and all that. Alex had started this. Well, you know, yeah, Alex. I know Alex. he started this 10 or so years ago. And uh, I thought I could help him. And he was very open to help. Samsak. Yeah. yeah you know, Samsak. I mean, Samsak is so talented. Yeah, he is. And he's a lovely yeah. person. And Alex is very yes. talented. So yeah. it was the makings of a team. The day his I, Alex and he met, mm-hmm. we met. And I said, we're going to do this together. We're going to grow it over time. We're going to have a woman's collection. And that's what started. It's not easy, but I don't, uh, you know, I I don't have uh, people who are second guessing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But look, on the other hand, it's very difficult because uh, I don't have these huge banks of gap or crew. uh, But, you know, I don't want an investor who... You know, if there's a long term, I know some investors, family, they're long term, they don't bug you and whatever. But that's uh, how we got together. And then we hired a fair amount of people that we knew. And uh, we all sit in the same. Bill, you've been up here. <laughs> yeah, I've been up there. I've read that you've called Alex Mill the little engine that could. I love yeah. that name. Yeah. And I called a lawyer, our lawyer. We have like a, he's like a, partnerish here so and i said find out if the little engine who told you that by the way i read it oh you did so i i wanted to know if that name was trademarked or patented (laughs) unfortunately it is in a big random house right right and i you know i thought maybe this i could call someone up and there's not one person I know in the world, you probably read it. Yeah, I read it to my daughter all all the time. Yeah, me too. It's a great (laughs) story. And, you know, never give up story. To me, that was who we are. And it was our attitude. But unfortunately. You can't can't own it. What does the playbook for success with with a modern sort of direct-to-consumer brand like Alex Mill look like? Direct-to-consumer is interesting. Uh, I did it first. But you know who did it first? Less West. Oh, yeah. When he opened up Limited, mm-hmm. I mean, he had all these different brands. Yeah. He didn't sell wholesale. I learned when I was a buyer in the department stores that you had no control over your product. Someone is always putting it on sale. And your inventory, your earnings, because, you know, we always had a policy, meet the pricing. So I saw what uh, Brooks Brothers was owned by Ann Taylor, not by the parent company. And the name Brooks Brothers, now again, it's not the same Brooks Brothers, (laughs) but the name, that's the name. Who's in charge of sale? Brooks Brothers. The company that inspired me was Benetton. Oh, yeah. 
And there, you know, you remember. I I remember it so well. And it's so funny, Mickey, because when I first started out, I mean, it, it was my whole childhood. But when I first started out, those are the people I really loved to hire were people that had been trained at Benetton because they were the best folders and the best merchandisers. They understood color. I mean, truly, they were so talented. And and I loved, I used to shop for my kids. I go in, it was in a London store. I guess I, I never really shopped much. And when I went to London, I just go into the store <laughs> wherever it was. And you'd pick out like this, very easy. Now, that was an inspiration yeah. for Kids and J. Crew kids, which frankly, I'm not going into the kids' business. It's, <laughs> it's really good. tough. Yeah, really tough. But we did a little tiny gap store in Hillsborough, about the size of a Benetton, but you know, exciting, but the margins. Yeah. It, it was. And so uh, those are the two influential. I always like Ralph's taste, mm-hmm. and he's consistent. So, and I couldn't really afford Ralph. I used to buy it wholesale uh, from my college roommate's cousin, who was his assistant. So half off, <laughs> I could buy. And I thought the world needed that. Uh, and even today, I don't know how you you shop designer. Do you carry uh, all the things? Yeah, you carry. And I'm stunned at the prices. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. But you know, most of that business, I think, I don't know. It's all logo, 70% accessories. Oh, they have a Celine, yeah. they have a Gucci, and Hermes. Yeah, but I, I have to say, I, I really think the consumer is changing. Our client doesn't want logo. They don't want to, I mean, they want really under the radar things that they could wear into the ground. It's People have yeah. really changed. I think the pandemic really wore us all down. Yeah, well, that's that's good to know because when I look at the outfits, I'm not going to say <laughs> magazines or whatever. I, I don't get yeah. it. I just don't understand it. And uh, we make clothes um, that you know don't go out of style. Yeah. Another thing I read that I love that you said was that small is the new big in retail. Yeah, because. Well, I don't like big corporations. Mm. That's nothing against them because I kind of worked in two big corporations. And when they get bigger, well, there's no such thing, in my opinion, as micromanaging unless you micromanage. <laughs> so I micromanage. I, you know, a gap I did at a J. Crew, I did here, I do it beyond because, <laughs> you know, just do big is not necessarily better i find out so many companies are bureaucrats are run by bureaucrats and i like them my friends i have some bureaucratic <laughs> friends but to get down into the trenches to get down to talk to customers i visited an auto company maybe 20 years ago i too uh, invited by the ceos I went to the design room. They didn't go with me. Hello? <laughs> That's where they build their cars, right. design. So, you know, you got to look at the goods or the cars. And do you think brick and mortar stores are more important than ever? I think that if you don't open up a hundred a year, <laughs> they're, yeah. I think yeah. they're, they're more important because they now have to be 
more special in terms of location that can't be on one every good. Look, I learned serious lessons at Gap and Old Navy. Oh my God. <laughs> they were all close together. And also things that become overdone. Mm-hmm. You kind of look, the only one who Taylor Swift, she's as you know, she's will not go out of fashion, but someday, who knows? I'm stunned by her <laughs> success and fame. But, you know, things too much is not good Agreed. of anything. I read that your favorite words used to describe you are mentor and mensch. I love that. Yeah. As a mini mentee, I, I would agree with that. Such a mentor. And you've been a mentor to so many incredible people along the way. I'm always flattered when people call me their mentor. And actually, it's kind of kind of touching to me because, uh, you know, maybe I've influenced their lives in one way or another. And I think also because a mensch <laughs> is someone who doesn't have these, um, you know, Superman or Superwoman feeling about themselves. Uh, I like humility. I grew up humble. And I never liked when the big shots, I didn't meet many, they didn't maybe say hello. We, we ask all of our guests um, what they were to the prom. <laughs> Did they have a oh prom at, at Bronx Science? Well, you want to know, I didn't... Uh, I didn't go because I was afraid to ask anyone to go. I never. No, that was a little bit anxiety producing for me. Do you have a favorite piece of clothing in your in your wardrobe? Oh, you know, I have actually a lot of them because I I I actually bought a lot of nice clothes and I amortize them. I don't know favorites. (laughs) Oh, I dreamt last night. And this is a weird dream that I lost my 25 year old Prada black cashmere overcoat. <laughs> and I woke up with that dream. It was, but I have, I really have a lot of things that are collectibles. Most of them are vintage, yeah. actually. Oh, I have a scarf. You ever hear Michael Drake? He was a scarf. There's still a Michael Drake around. Okay. And Michael, who I called two days ago, <laughs> He had the most beautiful scarves in the world. Mm. I don't know what the scarves look like. And Michael and I were friends. And I called him two days ago. I said, you know, Michael, we haven't spoken 15 or so years. I want you to tell every time I wear your scarf, I get a huge amount of compliments. <laughs> because I used to buy them wholesale or whatever from Michael. We carried them at Ann Taylor. Yeah. And that's my favorite. Those scarves are unique, never to be seen again at that level. That's a great answer. I can't thank you enough. You've been so generous, so generous. No, it's not. You know, I enjoy this. Thank you so much, Mickey. Take care. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drozda. Please follow us on Instagram at What We Wore Podcast for additional content and show updates.
queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Queen City Podcast Network.